Welcome to Ag Matters, a podcast where we talk about both matters of agriculture and why agriculture matters. Here's your host, Dr. Amanda Stone, Mississippi State University Assistant Professor and Extension Dairy Specialist. So today I have two guests with me, um, Dr. Bill Herndon and Dr. Josh Maples. Um, If you guys don't mind introducing yourselves, Josh, you want to go first? Sure. So I'm Josh Maples. I'm a extension economist here at Mississippi State. Been here starting my fourth year now. So thanks for having me on the show, Amanda. Yeah, I appreciate you coming. Amanda, I'm Bill Herndon. I'm retired about two and a half years ago. Uh, one of the jobs I had on campus of my 33-year-plus career was uh, as a dairy economist. So I did a lot of work with our state and uh, local, regional, and national uh, dairy policy and uh, policy development. Mm-hmm. And you're still involved in the dairy industry, That's right. right? I'm still doing some work with uh, Farm Bureau. In fact, uh, uh, this summer I was engaged with Farm Bureau both at the state level here in Mississippi and at the American level looking at dairy policy and in particular looking at federal milk order reform. Awesome. Well, I appreciate having you both here. And since you brought up the federal milk milk order reform, let's just start yeah. with that. If you don't okay. mind explaining what federal order is and <laughs> okay. everything involved. Well, in as, that. It, as it usual, this is probably at least a week long discussion. But I'll <laughs> try to federal milk marketing orders. There are a total of eleven of them uh, regionally across the UN, United States. Those the one in the southeast is called. Uh, coincidentally enough, the Southeast Federal Order. Uh, But the three in the Southeast uh, are the Southeast Order, the Florida Order, and the Appalachian Order. And one of the things that are unique about those three orders is they have some different provisions of federal orders that make them uh, unique and different from the other eight federal orders. Uh, One of those is how we price milk. in all the other eight orders, uh, milk is priced based on its solid contents, or what we call multiple component pricing. So farmers receive uh, higher value and higher prices for their milk if they have more solids, more proteins, uh, more butter fat. Whereas in the southeast, it's, it's just based on so, uh, excuse me, um, skim milk and butter fat. So it, they don't get any uh, pricing for our price development for solids like proteins and other things. So uh, it is different. Uh, So that's the kind of things that we're trying to wade through uh, with federal order reform. Uh, Some of the things that uh, there are a group of farmers or groups of farmers in the southeast that both support changing it from uh, skim fat pricing as it's called Uh, versus multi-component pricing. Uh, So there's a lot of discussion and the recommendation from uh, the American Farm Bureau when they developed their national policy book was to support that change, uh, to uh, support uh, the, uh, I guess, urging uh, uh, the federal order uh, uh, system to change to multiple component pricing in the southeast. But there's a long road to, to hold before we know if that's going to happen or not. Mm-hmm. And historically, I guess the Southeast 
is on a fluid market or a skim and butterfat market right. because of um, right. the deficit. Is that right? Is that why? Or that is right, and you know that's really the reason why the southeast, uh, the three orders in the southeast, and coincidentally the Arizona order is also under skim uh, fat pricing uh, scheme, uh, and and that it, you're exactly right, Doctor Stone, is that uh, the those three orders have been predominantly or dominated by uh, class one pricing, which is based upon skim and butterfat primarily. There's not that much milk in the Southeast that goes into other products like cheese and butter uh, and ice cream and yogurts, those types of things. Mm -hmm. So um, that's the, the, that's the background. Mm -hmm. And Josh, are other commodities priced this way or is it? Different. Oh no, milk, milk is definitely unique. Dairy is unique, mm -hmm. and if you, uh, it's whenever you're, you're looking at commodity marketing. Of course, there's futures markets for milk products too, or different classes. Uh, and, and whenever I teach the futures and options class, that is the one that's always most difficult to talk to students about as well, because they're uh, we have an idea. Of, we know what milk is. We 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 know what dairy production is in general. Uh, but then when you start trying to talk about how to hedge and uh, how to do risk management with dairy. It is an entirely new topic, mm -hmm. uh, entirely different topic than any other type of ag production uh, that we have here in Mississippi or really anywhere. So it's uh, more more complex and uh, it makes it a lot more interesting to try to do some risk management. Yeah, and that's right, uh, Josh, in the, in the sense that there is no mechanism for pricing fluid milk. There's a mechanism for pricing cheese and butter and uh, primarily, those are two of the products. Powder a bit, uh, whey some, uh, but again, dominated by cheese and, and, and butter. So really the price for class one or, or, or bottled milk, fluid milk, as we call it here in the Southeast, is derived from those other com uh, uh, dairy products, mm -hmm. cheese and butter primarily. And I think something that people don't, I guess people not in the dairy industry or ag industry don't actually realize is that dairy producers don't get paid the same, like ever, really. Every That's milk right. check that they get is going to be a little bit different. And so right. they can't plan ahead as well as some other industries. Like in the beef industry, Josh, you would know better than I do that they can hold on to their product, right? They can keep a cow or a steer until the market is really good. But in dairy, you can't. It's a perishable product. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, we're talking in beef, especially a lot of times they compare, you know, beef to uh, other commodities like corn or soybeans where you can physically put it into a bin and keep it until the next season. You know, beef, you can't do that, but you can certainly hold on to it a little bit longer than you can dairy. I mean, dairy, once it's once once the milk is there, it needs to move quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, there's a lot less control. I mean, producer doesn't have near as much uh, control over uh, when their supplies have to move and where they go uh, as compared to a lot of other commodities. Yeah, Josh, and if Dr. Stone would make those cows not have to be milked twice a day or three times a day <laughs> I mean, or that'd be nice. multiple yeah. times a day, uh, we'd be able to control some of that. But you can't, you know, if you miss some milking that uh, damages all kind of things, uh, both physically for the cow and and into the future. So uh, it's her fault. <laughs> well, if you want to give me some research money to study how to do that, I'll take it. <laughs> I think there's been a lot of folks trying to do that yes. over the years. <laughs> well, so can you talk a little bit about the pricing structures of other commodities out there? 
how they're set up? Yeah, so if we think about other livestock commodities especially, so we can talk about beef, you know. Uh, cattle pricing is, is not simple on its own, and so you've got different kinds of cattle. You've got live cattle. There's a futures contract for live cattle. Uh, that means cattle that are, are have been fed in feedlots, and they're basically ready, ready to go towards beef processing. Uh, the next tier down, you've got feeder cattle. Uh, there's a futures contract for feeder cattle. That's a you know, about 700, 750 pound uh, cattle that are going into feedlots. And so a lot of times producers in Mississippi, uh, we're looking towards that feeder cattle price because that kind of reflects more closely with the type of production we have here. Um, but then also, I mean, if you think about most farms here in Mississippi, that a lot of them are selling as soon as those calves are weaned. I mean, you're talking about 400 to 500 pound calves. Uh, so there's Cash prices that the producers actually go get at the stockyards or however they trade their cattle, uh, that's the price they get on their check. And then you've also got the futures prices uh, that are really kind of reflecting what's going on in the overall market uh, in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, so cattle itself is, is, is fairly complex. And there's, there's, some, there's some crossover between beef and dairy, especially on the cull cow side. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you think about, you know, there's cull cows in dairy and there's cull cows in beef. Uh, and those two... You know, whenever whenever one of them goes up, the last couple of years, uh, you know, cull cows from dairy have been up. So dairy dairy processing for cows has been up, uh, and that's kind of spilled over into the beef market as well. So uh, I think the story is that all of these commodities are related. We could talk feedstuffs as well. All of these things are really related. Uh, so to really get a picture on what's happening in any particular one, you've got to pay attention to what's happening in the other one. Mm-hmm. Definitely, because we're feeding the animals the of course, yeah. crops too that they they are growing, um, which brings us to another topic. I feel like is the export market at the moment. I don't want to get too political on the on this podcast, but can you touch a little bit on how I know soybeans and dairy have been severely affected. I don't know about other industries. Oh, can you touch on it a little? Sure, go ahead. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll start us off, <laughs> and I'm yeah. sure. Uh, Dr. Herndon will have something to say too, but uh, yeah, I mean, so exports right now are the big story. So I saw a slide last week, was at the USDA Outlook uh, Conference, and the uh, chief economist of USDA was talking, and he had a slide that showed that you take the total value of all of our trade deals, you know, the value of how much they're expected to be, 51% of that total value is either coming into effect in 2020 or is, is getting negotiated right now. So just think about how incredible that is. 51% of our total exports mm-hmm. we're renegotiating or working on right now. Right. It's, it honestly is unprecedented, I mean, in the last recent future anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of moving parts right now. So you mentioned soybeans. Soybeans were uh, a big or continue to be a big part of the, the trade war with China. Um, you know, we send a lot of our soybeans to, to China, about a third of our production uh, goes there. So oh. whenever they slapped a heavy tariff on that, that affected the prices we got here. And that, we're still not totally over that. Um, and then dairy as well. I mean, so there's, there's just a lot of moving parts there. It's been really hard to keep up with. And if you start talking about what that does to prices right now, so we've mentioned futures prices a few times. You know, futures prices are trying to be an expectation of what price is going to be sometime in the future. So, you know, you can uh, look at what cattle prices are going to be in June or uh, corn prices in December of this year. If you're trying to figure out what that price should be, so, you know, Dr. Hernan, 
should you should you be long or short? Should you buy or sell corn? I mean, whenever you try to decide that for 12 months from now, uh, factoring in what you think is going to happen with trade is so important. And there's just been a ton of uncertainty in the market. So I, I think the theme continues to be uncertainty, but the more trade deals that we can kind of lock into place will take some of that uncertainty out. Yeah, if you want to drill down to sort of the dairy market, uh, Mexico is our number one powder consumer, mm-hmm. I mean, export uh, customer. So uh, the renegotiation of NAFTA, NAFTA 2.0, or the U.S. MCA, uh, which is now being, I guess it's been signed, but Canada still has to uh, uh, sign it from their legislature, and then implementation after that. So there's a lot of uh, factors here that are going to influence dairy pricing uh, into the export market, and we're not even talking about the influence of China on, uh, as they continue to grow, uh, and India, and uh, so the, when the chief economist was talking about, we're, we're talking about all those countries, India, China, uh, Japan, uh, in particular, U.S., uh, and Mexico, and Canada, and, of course, China, the big the big, big customer. So, uh, And I guess uh, what we heard uh, the president t- tweet recently is he thinks that uh, there will likely be another market facilitation payment or uh, compensation for dairy farmers, not dairy farms, all farmers, uh, as a result of the delay in the implementation of the phase one of, uh, mm-hmm. of the China agreement because of the coronavirus and a lot of other factors into that and the delay in the U.S. Uh, MCA uh, agreement. So uh, a lot of a lot of moving parts, a lot of uncertainty. Traders uh, from farmers to people on the in the board down in the pits are are concerned about it, and, and there's there's really no way to say it's up or down. It's everybody's holding their breath. Mm-hmm. Right. The end objective, I guess, though, is to get more money for our producers. Right. That's what he's trying to accomplish. Certainly, yeah, yeah. If we have more customers, okay. both uh, domestically, but most of our agriculture products, I think, on average, forty percent of all the ag product products that we produce are exported, yeah. right? Yes. And some some uh, commodities like cotton, it's like eighty uh, percent. Others, you know, more perishable products like beef is fifteen percent right, right now, yep. and dairy is about the same, fifteen percent. Yep. And the run-up we saw in, in milk prices back in the in the 2014 to mm-hmm. 16 time period is really attributed to the strength of the export market. Mm-hmm. We went from about less than 10% of our milk was being exported to well over 15% of our milk was being exported. So that helped drive prices up to record levels uh, in the late uh, teens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Unfortunately, that that <laughs> momentum ran out uh, about 2017, and the last four years of milk prices have been very uh, difficult for farmers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, assuming that the export market either holds steady or improves, do you think milk prices are going to come up soon? <laughs> I think there's a lot of uh, momentum that that's already happening. Mm-hmm. We've seen some movement in milk prices in the late uh, 2019, and some of that momentum has moved over into 2020. So in general, 
there's a more positive outlook for milk prices in 2020, certainly compared to the previous four years. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say you can't get much worse than the previous four years, but I won't jinx it. <laughs> I would, yeah, it can get worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just ask the hog market about what, 10 years ago now? Oh, yeah. When we were trying to, you couldn't even uh, get a nickel for your, yeah. is that how low they got? Oh, yeah. Got, oh, no. Yeah. What happened? Uh, <laughs> well, there was some market manipulation, perhaps. Oh, okay. Uh, going on. <laughs> yeah. uh, as the, the hog market in the United States was being uh, uh, integrated from, much like the, bo the broiler industry already mm -hmm. is. So they were moving from farmers owning hogs and feeding them out and taking them to the market to where now the the ultimate, the processors, the Smithfields and the Tysons of the world actually contracted with, with growers to uh, grow their hogs for them. So the mm -hmm. hogs still belong to Tyson and Smithfield. So it's the same uh, market structure and dynamics as we see in the broiler market. Mm -hmm. And some people think other commodities are headed that way. Yeah, but that milk. was going to be my next question. I hear that in the dairy industry that that's where we're headed. What do you think about that? I think we are. Mm -hmm. if, if it's going to be in the next 10 years or 30 years from now, I think is the question. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it's going to happen in the next five, but it certainly could happen in the next 10. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, we've already seen the consolidation. I mean, that's really kind of the first step, and certainly what we saw in the other industries as well. Uh, you know, we're, we're consolidating, consolidating towards much bigger farms, uh, fewer, fewer farmers and much mm -hmm. bigger farms. Uh, so I, I agree with Dr. Herndon. I mean, we're, we're already kind of taking steps that direction uh, in dairy. Mm -hmm. Well, can you talk about the, the consolidation, I guess, how many farms are going out. You may not have actual numbers on that, but can you talk about the trends? Certainly across all agriculture, dairy is not unique in this, but we'll focus on dairy, at least in Mississippi. When I started doing, being more focused on dairy uh, in my career here at Mississippi State, it was about the mid-90s. And we had something, at least in Mississippi, we still had over 500 dairy farms. Mm in Mississippi. And I'm, I'm looking at some of my numbers right now. And, you know, today we have well less than 70. Uh -huh. So, uh, and I, if you look at other farm, cotton farms, you can see the same thing. Certainly hog farms, you can see the same thing. Uh, so there's been consolidation across agriculture. Some people have described it as well back in, in the 1990s is the industrialization of agriculture. So, uh, as farms have gotten bigger and bigger and become, but they're still family farms. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, because Multiple you know, families now. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it could be multiple families mm -hmm. because the corporate world has attempted uh, to get into farming and, you know, own cow, dairy cows and mm -hmm. milk cows, and they've found that it's a dismal failure because uh -huh. their stockholders want to have a profit at every level every year. Well, yes. dairy does not provide that, nor does any other agricultural enterprise. Yeah, so uh, uh, your comment made me think about, um, you know, dairy herd by size of operations. So if we look back, you said 1997. So in 1997, there was 125,000 uh, dairy operations or operations that have some kind of inventory. Uh, at that time, there was 9.1 million cows. So we're talking, you know, what, 23 years ago, right? right? 
2017, so 20 years later, we went from 125,000 operations to 54,000 operations. Mm -hmm. But the kicker is that we've got more cows. Uh So uh, the total number of dairies was cut in half, more than half, uh, but the total number of milk cows was nine, nine and a half million head of milk cows. So, uh, you know, that just happened in 20 years. It went from 125,000 dairies to 54,000. Um, and the trend has continued. So that was 2017. It's probably gone down even more since then. Um, I was looking at, uh, just looking at, uh, I think it was in hordes, but it may have been another uh, ag publication in Delta Farm Press or one of those magazines or newspapers. And I was a bit startled, actually. I was more than surprised. They were quoting one of the Midwestern states, and I can't remember which one. I think it was, I'm certain it was an I state, so Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, one of the I states, and their headline says, not 3%, three dairy farms produce 50% of the milk in I, that I think geographic. I read that too. Mm-hmm. So I was going, wow, we know it's happening, mm-hmm. but here we, there, there's the fact right there, mm-hmm. three dairy farms producing that much milk. So, and if you were looking at that, those 54,000 commercial operations, probably about less than 5,000 of them were producing well over half the, yep. the milk. Mm-hmm. Well, and we've it, made cows so productive, right, in so many genetics and nutrition and management that they, they're they a different animal than they were 23 years ago, which is a great thing in many ways, but also, I yep. think, allows for more consolidation. Yeah, and I'm glad you made that point, Amanda, because that kind of tying that back together with our discussion on exports earlier. I mean, so our cows are getting more efficient. We're getting more milk. Uh, if you look at, you know, domestic demand for milk, it's not, you know, where it's U.S. is growing in population. You know, we're, we're slowly growing in population. We're slowly growing in income. Uh, but really the consumption growth is outside of the U.S. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the place where uh, – both population and income is growing the fastest is not here. So you, you talk about a world where the cattle are getting more efficient, you know, we're getting more milk. Uh, if you want to continue to find homes for all of that milk, then that is why exports are so important, not just for milk, but for all commodities. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we've got to get our products into places that are growing a lot faster than the U.S. is in terms of people and spending power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in particular, Josh, as, as we know, whenever these growing these newly industrialized nations, as a lot of people term these groups. And we're talking about China, India, Mexico, a lot of countries in Central and South America, uh, and in Europe, and, well, Eastern Europe, uh, that are, whenever these large segments of their populations are moving from subsistence agriculture, where they've been on the farm, and they produce almost all the, the food that they're consuming, now they have jobs, industrial jobs in the city, and they're dependent upon uh, food being produced by other people. Mm-hmm. And as their income grows, one of the things we found time and time again, consumers want to consume more protein, either through beef or meat, not just beef, beef, chicken or, or poultry or any uh, of the meats, but also dairy products. And as the, the joke was, you know, you're talking about in China itself, I was looking at some numbers the other day, and they're thinking, they're, they're projecting that the middle class in China alone will grow by more than 250 million people oh, my goodness. by 2030. 
I think that was yeah. the right yeah. number. That's a lot uh, of people. And, and that's 10 years ago from now. Right? Yeah. And that's a blink of the eye. Yeah, I was looking at some really striking China numbers. Um, so I found this data set that goes all the way back to 1800. And we can, we can question the validity of the data in the 1800s, but let's, <laughs> let's take it for what it is for now. Basically from 1800, I think in 1800, population's estimate from China was like 320 million people. So, you know, close to where we are in the U.S. now. And the average GDP per person, so you can think of that as a measure of wealth or income per person, was $1,000, and that's adjusted for inflation, so that's in today's dollars. From 1800 to 1980, the population tripled, but the average GDP per person didn't change. So 180 years, we went from 1,000, there's three times, there's a billion people now, but the average income per person is still the same. From 1980 until now, it is now at 17,000. So it is just, that is really why China has been such a big deal. There's always been people there. Uh, but now there's a lot of people and their incomes and their, their value is growing. So just like our, their, their spending value, their, the, the amount of money they have to spend is growing. So that's, Dr. Hearn is exactly right. I mean, it's not just that there's a bunch of people. It's that there's a bunch of people there and they're starting to get enough money to where they can, uh, they can really start to demand the, the protein products they like. So. And India is in that same exactly. uh, number category because India is actually projected to uh, be – have a more populous country than China in like 10 years. Yeah, it's fast. <laughs> because oh, wow. China's population growth has been curtailed by this one mm-hmm. child per couple. Well, India doesn't have that rule, so they're continuing to grow very rapidly. Hmm. So we'll stop here for this part of the um, economics episodes. Um, so make sure you tune in next time where we will pick up the conversation in the part two of this um, block and make sure you like and subscribe. Ag Matters is produced and supported by the Mississippi State University Extension Service.